I'm assuming this is where the badass intro music is, is finishing up and we're transitioning into the show. <laughs> this is uh, Josh Finney, Mike Krupka, and John Colosimo. Did I get it right this week, John? Did I get the name right? Is it, it's, you got it's Colosimo. Colosimo, yeah. I can't, I, can't believe, I can't believe how many times I screwed that up before getting it right for the first time. Um, welcome to the This Land is Your Believe Land, or This Believe Land is Your Land podcast. Um, we appreciate you guys uh, joining us for another week of this uh, show. We're having a great time doing this, and we appreciate you guys listening. Um, we got a lot to cover despite it being a bye week. Um, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. It's been an interesting couple weeks in Brown's land, both for, uh, front office maneuvering and for the team. Um, it's been, it's been a good couple weeks. Um, I think that best case scenario, when we were talking two weeks ago about what we expected this team to look like in the, um, aftermath of the catastrophe, um, we didn't expect to, to be, this optimistic. We didn't expect to be in this good of a place. And I think a big part of it is just uh, the feel and the spirit. Um, after two competitive games and the team genuinely having a good time, enjoying each other, uh, laughing, joking, smiling, um, and encouraging themselves, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fun place to be a Browns fan again. Um, and I think out of the next six weeks, we can, uh, we can really hope that uh, that continues and that there's good vibes heading into 2019. Which I think, with the exception of the, the the stretch of Eric Mangini as he closed out with four straight wins, I can't remember a season in which we ended the year feeling good about ourselves. So, so here we are. Um, we're, we're post Falcons game. We're not going to rehash all of the the amazing highlights from the Falcons game, except to to say, you know, there's there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to take away from it um, at the macro level. So I am, for one, very very excited about some of the things that we're seeing. Uh, John, what did you see in that game that, that really uh, makes you feel great about this team going forward and makes you feel optimistic about what, what they have going on? Well, I think that the attitude was on display. You know, it looked like they were having fun. Uh, and obviously that's going to happen when you're moving the ball like that, you're winning games, you're going to have fun. But uh, what I love to see is finally some smart football, you know, where uh, – you know, we're passing against base defenses. We're running against nickels. You know, the it's the little things. We're um, doing smart things, and we're seeing success from it. And you know that we, we knew there was a chance because Atlanta's defense was so bad that we have a chance to kind of build some confidence in those types of things. But we faced bad defenses earlier this year and did not do that. So it wasn't given. It wasn't a given. And uh, so it was nice to see us finally – uh, take advantage of situations where we hadn't seen that earlier this year. So I, I would say that's my biggest takeaway beyond the obvious things, like the game that Mayfield had and the game that Chubb had and those types of things. Mike, how about you? We talked about this, I think, maybe the last two or three weeks of, of looking forward to seeing a new brand of football. And I think that's exactly what we've seen on display uh, this week, especially. I, I think, I forget who it was, but someone posted a, a, a stark contrast of a photo where you saw the locker room with it you know behind Hugh Jackson during a victory speech and then you saw yeah, the locker room that. behind Greg Williams after the victory speech and it's it's completely different you could you couldn't have painted a, a more different picture and I think that just speaks to, to what John was saying in terms of the brand of football that we're seeing and the buy-in that the players are are really feeling and, and I think that comes towards the the, the, the point that Again, we've been trying to, to hammer a, a, 
a circle into a square for the last two years with Hugh Jackson. And there's an article that came out today about the, the, the players actually just submitting their favorite plays to the coaches. And the coach is actually listening and implementing that type of stuff. It's, it's very a la the Eagles in the Super Bowl with the, uh, the Philly special and, and something like that. And, um, you know, outside of that stuff, you can't walk away from that game and not think that Baker Mayfield is the answer for this franchise. And I, I, I feel like I've been stuck in the upside down since that game. And, I, and I'm cool <laughs> being there. because it's, it's, it's a totally new, new feeling. And I just want to stay there. And I think Baker Mayfield gives us that chance. Um, and I'm excited. You know, I, I love that you call it the upside down because that's exactly how it feels. I've, I've been uh, friends who are fans of good Sports teams have tried to prep me for this moment with, with a football team that, like, this is what this feels like. And, and I, I think the best example of that is that you've seen articles talking about how the, the Patriots are just like, this isn't their year, and Tom Brady just doesn't have it anymore, and the team is coming apart of the teams. And that's a 7-3 and three football team. It's still almost definitely going to have a first <laughs> round by in the playoffs and have an outside chance in the Super Bowl. And that's just the difference in, this, difference in the standards. And we saw that over the last couple of years with the Cavs that, like, even when the team was winning, you know, 50 to 60 games, it was a shoe in to go to the finals. You can look at it and say, this isn't the kind of team that we can be. Um, and the Patriots are kind of experiencing that now. And we're on the other side of that. We're looking at it and saying, oh, this is what other fan bases feel like when they wake up and they feel like their team has a chance to compete every week. When they start to look at the schedule and they say, hey, you know what? You know, Carolina's not that far away for a drive. Like, maybe I should just pop into that game. Or, you know, Baltimore, like, I know it's going to be – 20 below zero and I'm gonna freeze my nuts off but like maybe this is a good weekend to go stand around a parking lot with my buddies and drink beer and get ready for a football game um it's 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 energy and it's positivity and that's that's what uh Baker Mayfield brings to you and I think I, I also saw that article I, I saw Joel Batonio talking about how much the interior offensive linemen loved it the interior offensive linemen said this is this is the kind of scheme that we like to run this is what we know from practice we're good at and immediately over the course of two weeks you just saw enormous dividends in the run game and all of this should be with the precursor that John mentioned earlier that like, these are just some terrible defenses and a lot of teams are going to look good against it. Um, but this isn't a Brown team that's been able to put its uh, you know, that, that's been able to put its imprint on the running game really in years. You see good games here and there, but this isn't a team that is able to establish the run and then, and then use play action effectively off of it for two weeks. Now they have, and they haven't perfectly executed that, that game plan, especially against Kansas city. But, but you saw what, they can be when they, when they establish that up front, which, which kind of leads into the, the next point of um, a really interesting conversation that Doug Lamarie's and Jake Burns had on the uh, Browns film breakdown podcast, which I was listening to this week. You guys don't listen to the pod. I'm sure you guys all do. It's, it's a really fun podcast. I enjoy it. Um, and Doug brought some good insight in which he really, he tried to tamp down the enthusiasm a little bit for these two coaches. And he makes a good point when he says, this isn't, rocket science. This isn't something crazy that we're seeing amongst uh, these new coaches, amongst Freddie Kitchen schemes. What you're seeing is the level of capability and competence that we should have expected from week one. That, you know, a lot of people, not just, you know, the Browns blogosphere, but a lot of national writers, had this as a team that was going to win seven or eight games this year. They had a good defense with a lot of high-end talent. They had, uh, you know, a veteran offensive group with Jarvis Landry and Carlos Hyde, Tyrod Taylor, some really good interior linemen that cost a lot of money and a lot of high draft picks. And they said, this is the kind of competency on offense you should expect. They're not, they're still not blowing the, the, the doors off or blowing the brakes off of people. But what they are is they look baseline competent. And I really, you know, kind of had to argue with myself about uh, whether I felt that way or not. 
Because I think that a lot of what we've seen from Freddie Kitchens over the last few weeks is a scheme that's putting his guys in the, in the best position to succeed. He's, he's using some unorthodox player groupings of, you know, three tight ends. You saw him with the, uh, the wishbone last week. But, the, but, but there is a point to be made that maybe this is what we should have expected all along. And maybe this isn't special. Maybe this is baseline competency. What do you guys think about that? I just want to point out that uh, we can now officially call you Jostradamus because <laughs> Joe from the last podcast, you came out and said that, what are we going to do, run the wishbone next week? When we were talking about kitchens and, and what he might do for us. So I just want to now officially dub you that, Josh, by the way. I hope, I I hope like you it. like that. Right on. Um, so, no, I mean, I think he's absolutely right. I, I think that what Dorsey said in his press conference, I think almost supersedes that in, in the big picture of what we're trying to talk about. And what I mean is that what we're seeing right now is baseline competence. Absolutely. But Dorsey's task and Dorsey's call to the team, which was very clear to me from his press conference anyways, was that, you know, we've got these last six games. We expect to win. And if, if Greg Williams comes in and, and can do that, and if Kitchens comes in and, and can – and continue to develop these, these game plans that put Baker Mayfield and, and our playmakers, Chubb, et cetera, in the right position to make plays. First of all, I, I, you guys have to nod your head in agreement. I think last weekend watching that designed screenplay that actually went for a big gain or a touchdown, <laughs> the first time I've ever seen an, ex, an executed screen pass successfully done by the Browns team in decades. It was a, a thing of beauty. There's like three so, fakes on that thing. Yeah, I like how my entire yeah. twi- my entire Twitter timeline all at once, it was like a bomb went off. Everyone was like, "Wait, did, did the Browns just execute a screen pass? Did the Browns actually <laughs> not get called for holding and get positive yards on a screen pass? I didn't know that was a thing we could do." We may be surprised, and, and I've already seen some polls that are out there with a lot of Browns fans out there really wanting or thinking that Williams and these guys have a chance to be, you know, to be resigned for long term contracts. Um, I think it just comes down to winning. If they can win a majority, more than 50%, 60% of these next six games, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. Yeah, I, I, we're definitely seeing competent football from, from what these coaches are putting out there. But at the same time, you can hear the hesitation in my voice, but I, I, we're going to see how teams adjust as Freddie Kitchens gets more on film. Uh, we have some tough defenses coming up. I saw there's you know three top five uh, D, DVOA defenses on the schedule. Um, so they'll have their challenges. Um, I expect to see some ups and downs. Uh, I'm glad to take as much success and as much winning as they want to give me. Uh, I don't see a big future as far as any of these coaches go. I think a fresh start is where uh, John Dorsey is going to focus a lot of his time on. I think he's going to spend uh, an awful lot of the rest of the season looking at a fresh group of faces, uh, you know, one of the problems when it comes to kind of – you're almost kind of band-aiding this thing if you take this staff forward because Hugh Jackson chose this staff. But say you named Greg Williams that coach, well, he didn't choose Freddie Kitchens. He didn't choose, you know, these guys. And, and it's all well and fine when things are going well. It's really – it's when you start to hit these rough patches where I think you can start to see cracks form when you didn't pick your full staff as you would have if you were hired fresh. Yeah, I think that's the kind of the danger zone there that you can, you can find yourself in. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for playing with house money and knowing that, like, it doesn't really matter. The, the attitude that Greg and, and Freddie Kretchen have had up to this point is that 
you know, they didn't choose this job. Nobody thought they were going to succeed in this job. The season's already more or less over. And I know I'm going to catch some, some guff for that. Sure, the Browns are still statistically alive, but, you know, they dug themselves a huge hole. And there wasn't anybody that expected them to reel off, you know, seven of eight next games as wins. So, so there is some playing with house money, and there is a looseness that comes from that. It's kind of like you see guys – it's, it's kind of like in baseball – guys, you know, hitting uh, against middle, middle relievers late in the game when, when, you know, they're down eight runs. Everyone goes up there and they play loose and you get to do your best thing. Or, you know, guys, uh, you know, in, in non-clutch situations of basketball, you know, watching their, their, their shooting percentage go up a little bit um, because they're just – they're not thinking about it. They're just shooting. So, so there's something to be said for that. Um, and you're right. Hugh Jackson uh, picked these guys. Greg Williams didn't pick these guys. John Dorsey didn't pick these guys. And I kind of wish um, that we could go uh, back in the time machine and know who John Dorsey would have picked had he had the option to last year. Um, I really, really like the, the the cast characters that that came out last year. I thought some really, really good uh, head coaches, some of which who were really due for a head coaching gig, uh, got jobs last year. And you're really starting to see it. And I'm wondering if the folks that will be available this year, I, I'm wondering if having a better possibility of getting a top name candidate based on the talent that's in place and, and, and John Dorsey's relationships is, is worth more than having gone after uh, some of the names that, that were available the last year, the last few years. I really like Frank Reich in, uh, in Indy. I think what he has done with the offensive scheme there has really made uh, Andrew Luck comfortable and has really gotten the, the juices flowing. I like Nagy in, in Chicago. I know this is his, uh, his second year there. But I look at some of the names that we've talked about already. We've talked about Flip. We've talked about Coach Schwartz. Uh, we've, we've kind of lingered over some of the retread names of Bruce Arians or, or a potential John Harbaugh. Do you guys think that um, – and, and some of this is hindsight bias or recency bias. Do you think that if you could go back in time, you'd, you'd be more interested in one of the names that, that went to the league last year? Or do you think that the Browns, in a better situation with the names that are out here having their first choice of these guys and some of the college players or some of the college coaches – are in a better position going into 2019? I actually think it's an interesting question. And uh, it's such a weird situation that the Browns are in because if, if you're looking at last year and if we had gone and in my opinion, done the right thing, just from a, a standpoint of getting rid of the coach that wasn't supposed to be here, uh, regardless of what your options were, I don't think that we were in a, good, a great position to nab the exact guys that we maybe would have wanted at the time that we would have had to make that hire. So it's like this weird kind of flip situation where it's possible that there may have been better names on the market last year, but we were in a worse position to get them. And, yeah. and now this year we're in a, a far better situation coming in here, and I'm not sure that the names are quite as good as they were last year. So it's funny, but I think that ultimately you'd rather be in the position that we are now because what you really want, I think is to be able to get the guy that you want. And so that I think is where the position that we are in now that we weren't in previously. Yeah. So Mike, what I'm hearing from John is that like, because we're in a better situation now, we get the pizza with the pineapple and the bacon or pineapple and the ham now. <laughs> and if we had gotten pizza last year, we would have been stuck with like a regular Supreme pizza. What do you think about that situation? Well, you know, I, I know everyone thinks that pineapple on pizza in Hawaii just goes hand in hand, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm ready to, to throw fists with, with that, uh, with that choice of pizza. But in terms of bringing this back to actual football <laughs> talk, I, I think what, what you see with Reich and what you see with Nagy and what you see with, with Flip are guys that went to a team that had a quarterback 
And I think yeah. now that the Browns have their quarterback and head coaches know that this guy is the real deal and he's not just a first-round draft pick that, you know, you should hit number one pick, but you still don't know. But you know, you can tell, and, and I'll go out there and, and say that I know and I can tell that Baker Mayfield is the real deal at this point halfway through the season. So now that we have that, I think we're in a better position to lure the coach that we want. So that's kind of how I feel about that position. And uh, for all you pineapple pizza lovers, I don't know about you guys. <laughs> I, I actually hey. want to circle back on what you just said in that Dorsey hit on the first rounders and he should have hit on the first rounders. And I want to frame that in the same conversation that we did, the, the coaching staff. So look at what Freddie Kitchens and, and Greg Williams are doing. And we said, okay, you guys are, you have NFL talent and now you are, performing like an NFL team every given Sunday you have a chance to win probably going to get the the breaks knocked off of you by the Chiefs and the Patriots and the Steelers of the of the league the elite class but for for everybody else below that tier it's pretty obvious that the 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 playing field is pretty level should we hold Dorsey to that same standard where we say hey you uh you had four picks in the top you know 30 whatever picks you had four picks in the top 45 picks you had 10 overall you had this enormous salary cap um, and you had the number one overall pick, so you got your choice of a quarterback in a quarterback-rich draft. Like, everybody's lauding John Dorsey for the job he did, and it's kind of like just didn't hit that, that our backup players that may never pan out at all. Talking about you, Chad Thomas, <laughs> should, we be holding, should we be holding him to that same standard? What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I think it's fair to. I mean, you, you have to keep the same similar standard for everybody, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the table was set for Dorsey to come in and feast, and he did, and he did a great job. I think what he did, though, is, is he hit on other picks that we haven't seen in recent years. And I think, you know, when you look at Avery, you look at, I think Callaway is going to develop into a good player. Obviously, the questionable pick with, with Thomas. I think you got to give everybody more than a year to, to really show what the draft is going to be. But my, my point being is that, you know, GMs historically, it, it's, it's not an exact science, right? It's a really hit or miss thing. Being able to adjust and adapt and, and call competent football games is, is, the, is the baseline standard that coaches have. And we, we haven't even been there yet. So what, what I'm trying to say is that you got to hold Dorsey to a high standard, but what he's done in comparison to what we've been used to from the GM position has been a home run. I mean, I don't think overall the draft was a home run, but the, 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 the change that we're going through, again, it, it, it's drastically different where, oh my God, we've got, you know, guys that are actually contributing that shouldn't have been fourth and fifth rounders and guys at the top that are actually being like the best in the league. I, I definitely think you have to keep them to the same standard. Uh, I don't think Dorsey has been flawless. I think he's been great. Um, yeah. I think there's some, some definitely some things you can argue about and bicker about and, and say, I wish we would have done this or that. Um, you know, Harold Landry would have loved to have him sudden. You would have had, you know, would have loved to have him. It's all revisionist history, but. Tell me about it. Um, yeah. And I, uh, I can build on that a little bit. Uh, I definitely had Dorsey coming in and I was looking at him with a skeptical eye. You know, I was looking at the reasons that he was let go uh, from KC just recently from there. And so I was looking for things, you know, I, I was worried about statements where he was just as excited about the amount of cap space that we had as the draft picks that were left to him. And so I was looking for some bad deals that, that could be made, but uh, that's one of the good things is that uh, as much money as he spent, uh, there was no deal that he signed that includes Jarvis Landry that didn't have an out within two years. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So even if something didn't work out, most of those were one-year deals. Some of them weren't even guaranteed in Mitchell's case. Uh, so, you know, I think he did a great job in terms of structure. You know, I'm sure he had plenty of input from some of the guys in-house. You know, for the picks, I'll only touch on one, and, and I think that picking a quarterback is never easy, and there's definitely luck involved. You know, I think the hit rate that he had is not sustainable. Uh, we just have to appreciate that it came at the very perfect time for us. Uh, but I'm going to give him credit at the top of the draft for doing something that most people never thought he would ever do which is to take Baker Mayfield at the top of the draft. You know, I don't think there's many people who actually would have put dollars on the fact that the Browns were going to make that choice when it came down to it. You know, even as much as I wanted it, as much as I wanted it, I just didn't think it was possible until I heard the words come out of his mouth. So I'm going to give him credit there. I'm going to give him credit for uh, those signings. You know, I don't think that we can uh, expect that type of hit rate. Uh, he wasn't perfect. But I have very little bad to say about the job that he's done in this first year. So. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I want Dorsey to get the credit here, too, that he deserves uh, because a lot of times people will compare records of previous GMs to him um, or GMs around the league. And I also want to note, point out that like he knocked it out of the park in free agency outside of Landry, being able to add, being able to add Demarius Randall. EJ Gaines and Terrence Mitchell to the to the defensive backfield. They, he took the positions for the Browns. Um, yeah, and TJ Carey. He took the positions that that were the the biggest glaring weakness, which were the defensive backfield and the wide receiving group. And he threw a massive amount of resources at it. And sometimes it didn't play out too well. Like Jarvis Landry at the dollar figure that he's at is crazy money. Um, and TJ Carey had a really rough start to the year. He had a great game against Atlanta. Um, but he was also uh, a, a, a real weak spot in the defense. But Marius Randall's a player, and I hope they, they sign him to extension because that defensive backfield is fantastic with, with the, all four guys healthy out there. Um, and that was, you know, three out of those four positions were from John Dorsey, and, and credit should be where credit's due there. I think one other point on this is that, uh, you know, I was a fan of not everything, but a lot of the idea of what Sachi Brown did uh, to get us into a position to make those picks. Sometimes they worked out, sometimes they didn't. Um, and I don't necessarily think, ultimately, looking back, that that's a blueprint. One of the problems that Dorsey had in coming in is he had all this money to spend, uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of takers, you know, because they were so bad and because they kept Hugh. You know, those things didn't make it as easy as you would think to spend your money on the open market. And I think that forced his hand in terms of things like making that trade for Tyrod or making that trade for Jarvis and giving him that money. And so I think those are a little bit of the negatives. And I don't think Sashi ever envisioned one in 31. I don't think anybody on the team did. But I think that sinking quite that low and getting – those high picks, it came at a cost when it came to trying to acquire talent with that cash space that we were able to clear out. So yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, with with what you're uh, what you're saying there, and it really was a difficult situation to step into. Um, regardless of, of the old adage of everybody's going to take your money, you throw enough money at people, they're going to take it. Um, this wasn't a this wasn't a great situation for players, especially wide receivers and quarterbacks, given the history here. He he kind of had to make do with with. Uh, what he had available in the market. I, I would like to go back into a time machine and um, shred uh, Chris Hubbard's contract before it, before it hit. Um, that has been a, a catastrophe, but 
you don't get quality tackles on the free agent market. So I don't know that we really could have expected much more from it. But unless but you're Mitchell Schwartz. Unless you're Mitchell Schwartz. Unless unless they're coming from the Browns, it's really difficult to get Pro Bowl caliber <laughs> linemen uh, as another team. It it just almost never happens. You see, I, I, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of Andrew Whitworth. Alex Mack and Mitchell Schwartz as top 10 guys at their position that managed to make the free agency in the last couple of years. Um, so we're going to take a quick break here. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the rest of 2018 and going into 2019 and what we should expect. Hey, welcome back. We're, uh, we're, this is the, this believe land is your land podcast. Um, and we're, uh, we're talking about uh, 2018 and how it sets us up for 2019. Um, it's a really interesting concept at this stage of the, in the Brown season as to what they're trying to do right now and how that sets you up for future growth. Um, we saw with the trade of Carlos Hyde to uh, Jacksonville that John Dorsey prioritized getting uh, Nick Chubb some work and getting this line comfortable with the type of running style that he is. I thought that that was a really savvy move, and I think it's really played out well. I think that um, over the course of the last couple of weeks, you've just seen a, a growing in confidence of Nick Chubb. You've seen the offensive line uh, play better to his strengths. And it's gotten to the point where even when Baker Mayfield has an otherworldly performance, when he sets a uh, NFL rookie record for uh, capability and it's, and it's near flawless, that he still might not even be the rookie of the week because Nick Chubb is uh, out there just banging away, taking, taking things to the house and also setting Browns records for <laughs> uh, touchdowns here. I've had a hard time looking at the, uh, the Pepsi rookie of the week and the uh, FedEx ground game. I'm, I see a lot of these guys up for awards. It's really difficult for me to – who had the better week between Chubb and Mayfield. I always tend to uh, give the benefit of the doubt and a tie to the quarterback just because of the uh, difficulty of the position comparatively and how much more a running back depends on everything around him to be successful. Mike, what do you think, dude? What do you, who do you think uh, is, is deserving of that rookie of the week honor? Well, before I answer that, let me, let me ask you guys to clarify this for me. I think Baker Mayfield in this performance this week had the highest QBR rating. I think it was for a rookie in NFL history. Is that accurate, or am I mistaking that for the Browns record? That is uh, that is what I just said. So I'm going to assume it's accurate because QBR and QB rating. <laughs> okay. So no, I mean obviously Nick Chubb just set the record for the Browns, right? The, the single game record for the Browns. So I'm just trying to help differentiate and 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 kind of cheer out the performances. Obviously, like you mentioned, Josh QB is. You, I always give them the benefit of the doubt due to the you know how hard it is to play that position in the NFL, especially. So, um, but man, Nick Chubb, I think he has surprised a lot of people that didn't really pay attention to who Nick Chubb was, and I think in this performance specifically. I think what he was able to do in terms of ripping off that was a 92-yard run and showing what I believe is is an elite NFL-level type of like second burst at the second level. I, I have to give it to Nick Chubb because you know Baker Mayfield was able to hit that one bomb. It was an amazing bomb. It was a beautiful play. You could replay that thing over and over and over for forever. Um, so much to talk about on that play. I think the other two plays in and of themselves were a little bit simpler. They were both screen passes, right, that are in the, in the red zone, um, closer to the, to the goal line there. So I'm not taking anything away from Baker Mayfield. I'm just saying in terms of that game and, and who I would give it to, I would definitely say Nick, Nick Chubb was, uh, was my guy in that game. What he showed, yards after contact, the, the burst, the, the balance, um, it, it was, as people are, are taking the hyperbole to the, the whole spectrum here, it was, you know, 
better than Saquon Barkley, right? So it, it was uh, it, it was fun to watch, and I, I definitely gave it to uh, Mr. Chubb. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely love what I saw out of him, and I just that's just been building throughout this year. You know, I was a huge Nick Chubb fan all the way back to his freshman year in Georgia. Um, I loved when the Browns took him. That's who I wanted. I was not a Sony Michelle guy. I mean, he's he's a great player. I'm not taking anything away from him, but Nick Chubb was my guy. That's that's who I wanted out of the backfield, and I know that uh, for some. I, I, I felt like I was in the minority on that one, but um, there were plenty of people who still did uh, like what Nick Chubb was bringing. And just to see him get back to this, and you know, just like you said, this, finding the second year like he has, I mean, that just brings he, – because he has so many fundamentals. Why he was still a great prospect is he has fantastic vision. Uh, he's got great agility. Uh, he's a physical freak, even you know after that horrific knee injury. Uh, but to find this second gear and this burst back, uh, it just takes us to a whole other level. I don't know where he'll go uh, throughout his career as a pass catcher. I think he's got uh, opportunities there. You know, I don't know, um, you know, if he'll ever be the route runner, say that Duke Johnson is, but I think he has hands uh, and he sure can handle a screen. Um, so, but he's got plenty of growth that he could do there because as far as running the ball goes, he doesn't have a lot to learn. All right. This guy can do it with the best of them in this league right now, right here. Yeah, I, I agree. And I was actually a really big fan of his coming out too. Um, he, he and Sony Michelle were, were ultimately um, like kind of 1A and 1B for me um, behind Darius Geis. Um, but they were all ahead of Saquon Barkley for me. And it wasn't because of athletic testing. Um, I thought that uh, Barkley and – or excuse me, I thought that, that Michelle and Chubb were both going to test well enough to match up what you saw with them on tape. But um, – I, I was, I was very happy with any of those selections, and I really liken this year's draft picks or this class of running backs, especially when you throw in guys like Rashard Penny, uh, Ronald Leffing Jones, um, to the 2014 uh, wide receiver class. This is a good group, top to bottom. This is a group that will, will, um, when we look back on it, we'll say, man, there was a lot of talent in this draft, and that's how you get a Nick Chubb at uh, you know the middle of the second round because you're working with um, – or at the front of the second round because you're working with a deep pool of talent. Um, Saquon Barkley will always have uh, an incredible amount of uh, potential just because of the, the ridiculous athleticism. Um, but I think that when all is said and done, if you, uh, if, if you think Nick Chubb has all of the athletic talents that a Jamal Lewis would, then the type of offense that the Browns want to run and the type of game that you play in December and hopefully January in Northeast Ohio, Nick Chubb is a perfect fit for that. So, so I love that he's here. As I said a couple minutes ago, it's, it's very clear that, that Dorsey and now Greg with multiple G's uh, <laughs> wants to set up the rest of 2018 to kind of showcase players for 2019. You've seen guys take the next step this year um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, you've seen – uh, a, a much more com- confident and comfortable group of pass catchers. And Joku um, has had a good couple weeks in a row of making tough catches. Um, hasn't had any critical drops. Callaway is really coming on. You're seeing uh, Brashard Perriman uh, take a step forward. He had a great game. Maybe his best game as a pro um, last week. He's very comfortable with what we have going on. Um, besides getting the pass catchers comfortable in the scheme and putting them in positions where they can grow in confidence um, and where they can begin to um, – 
get comfortable in this scheme. What else do you want to see over the course of the rest of 2018 to really get this team set up for 2019 and beyond? I think in addition to the names you've just, you know, listed, you got to figure out and decide if Greg Robinson can really be a serviceable left tackle for you. I think he's done a great job in these last two games. Um, I, you know, he staved off Harrison coming back from, from sickness, John, or Josh, which you and I talked about last week, right? We talked about, you know, was he going to be able to maintain the starting, starting uh, role? Uh, and he did, and he came out and he played well. So I think over the next six games, you've got to try to evaluate if you think, you know, he's the long-term answer or can be the long-term answer. Because um, I think that's going to help really set the tone for the draft. Uh, now, I know you say that, or you know, I I see you guys la- smiling, laughing. Yeah, yeah, we're smiling, laughing at that. I, I I'm not saying that I think he is, but I'm saying that as an organization, you need to figure out how high of a draft pick are you going to spend on a left tackle, right? You need you need to figure out if that's going to be your you know priority one A or is it one B? And I think. Um, it's just an important question in the offseason. How, how much value do you assign to that position? Uh, because like you mentioned, the, the pass catchers, Callaway, those guys um, need to continue to develop. And I would also argue that, you know, I, I still want to see Njoku involved more. I want to see him involved more in the red zone. And I want to see his development continue because tight ends take two to three years in the NFL, right? And, and I feel like he's kind of right on the, the springboard of, of big things. So, um, that's, that's kind of what I have in mind when, when I look down the stretch of who I want to see kind of utilized and, and developed. I think that the overwhelming um, consensus will be that the Browns are going to have to get a tackle next year. It's almost impossible to find these guys in free agency. I hear what you're saying. You can only address so many things in the first round, second round. I think that arguing about whether the Browns should add one of the interior defensive line or even edge rushers in this year's draft, which features to be a very, very deep defensive line class, or add a tackle to replace one of the two underperforming guys is going to be the argument that we're going to have from now until next April, May. Like those are going to be the trenches. It's going to be world war one. Everyone's going to have takes. It's going to be hot. Bombs are going to go off. Uh, Personally, I'm of the opinion that um, it's easier to find uh, a talent in the second or third round that can fill in and that can really develop the depth on your D line than it is to get a premium left tackle. And I think that the Browns will absolutely need one. But uh, I do want to touch on one other point that you just made about um, the tight ends. I loved seeing for the last two weeks the number of multiple tight end groupings that Kitchens used. And I thought it really made the Browns very multiple. When you have guys like Duke Johnson that can flare out and that can play wide receiver or running back, and you have tight ends like Deval and Joku and even Orson Charles playing fullback uh, who can catch, uh, it really makes you very multiple. And I thought that Kitchens was the first guy to really actually – do that in a way that I've been, you know, chomping at the bit to have them do. And so, so that's one thing for the rest of this year that I really would like to see them utilize more is multiple tight end sets so that they can get those guys more involved in passing game. John, what do you think? Yeah, and uh, I'll tell you, like, to that point, you know, in draft, I don't know if you want to call it draft theory or something like that, but when you have uh, an extreme depth at a certain position uh, and you don't at another, but you have some premium talent, if you have a chance to grab that premium talent, then, you know, logic would say that you go ahead and grab that premium talent uh, at the short, you know, end of the stick there. You know, so if we only have a couple tackles that are premium, you go ahead and grab him, assuming that because there's so much D-line talent that you're, what you're left with on that second round is going to be a much higher quality 
player than what you would be left with in the opposite scenario if those are your top two priorities. So uh, it would make sense to me. Um, I do think that we at least have to, you know, address uh, the tackle position at one end. Uh, that's kind of leads me into what I would like to see the rest of the year. One of the things I want to know is just just how much of a problem is Chris Hubbard? This guy was a quality swing tackle when we grabbed him from Pittsburgh, and that was over multiple years. Uh, and there's been a lot of guys uh, on Twitter that will tell you that that scheme played just as much a part as talent in how poorly uh, you know these tackles performed over that first part of the year. I mean, and you saw that when you're trying to, as you've talked about, you know, execute this Eric Oriel scheme you know, and have them protect for, you know, seven steps plus more, uh, trying to get uh, guys that really aren't getting separation on the sidelines of the ball, you know. So I think you've seen that the pressure has been off Baker these last two weeks, and that's – they're not different guys. You know, well, we have a different guy in uh, Greg Robinson, but uh, I, I'm not a believer in Greg Robinson. I still think that he's not very good. I think that what we've seen since he's got in uh, – you know, and that, that's not a fact. This is just my opinion. But I think that what we've seen as Greg Robinson has been in has coincided with a change in scheme where we're relieving our pressure off of those tackles. We're kind of hiding them in the passing game by doing these screens, by, you know, getting these quick passes and those types of things. I don't know. What, what do you think, Mike? Real quick, I, I don't disagree with you guys. I don't necessarily believe Greg Greg is the answer, right? Um, I think you make a great point in, in that it just jogs my memory. You know, we have 11 draft picks, if I'm not mistaken, for 2019. Right. And if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm a betting man, I'm betting that we're making some moves. I mean, we're not going to stand put. I think we're going to kind of come up and, and, and be aggressive. So maybe you're right. Maybe we do take a, a tackle first, and all, you know, a left tackle first, and then try to make some moves to come up and, and get and secure what we feel is one of the top defensive tackles. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I mean, from a value standpoint, but I guess I would not be surprised to see us make some moves uh, to get those 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 talent pieces added to the stack. Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I, I want to admire um, how quickly you backpedal off of that thought about Greg Robinson being a long term uh, solution. There, that was, <laughs> that was an incredible. No, all made I said was that the organization has to decide, like again, how much value they're going to assigned to that to that need that's all I said but, and I don't think he is the answer they need to decide if they're going to take you know 1A with a tackle or are they going to wait and you guys all make good points um, and uh, yeah so that's where I'm at. Uh, defensively um, one thing that I loved from this last week uh, was that um, you really saw the defense co coalesce and come back together with Joe Schobert being back on the field that was really fun to see um, he really is the heart and soul of this defense, as multiple people have, have pointed out. I think Dustin Fox uh, was the first on that thought. And it's true. Um, the Browns defense is just different when he's out there and he's playing well. Uh, and they rely on him to play well, um, to, to, to be successful. But uh, I'm hoping that – and I never thought I'd be in this situation saying this. I'm hoping that we see a lot more of uh, TJ Carey um, having an opportunity to play. He's been <laughs> up and down most of the year. But he had a really good week this week. I think that if the Browns – uh, cornerback room has TJ Carey being effective inside where we know that he's a capable uh, slot corner inside nickel corner, um, but also having the flexibility to occasionally be able to play guys as they move outside. It really changes that defensive backfield a lot. I don't have high hopes. And I think that there are four guys in that room already. If we're counting EJ Gaines that are better uh, in both of those roles, but 
uh, what the Browns defensive backfield is able to do um, when he's playing with confidence is just dramatically different. Uh, John, uh, what do you, what do you think as far as defensively over the course of the rest of the season, what are you hoping to see? Well, first off, just comment on the backfield situation. You know, the, one of the things that I think was a big question mark coming into the season was the approach that John Dorsey took to the cornerback position. Uh, and it, at the time when I was commenting, uh, you know, on that right after free agency, it seemed like a grab whoever we can, you know, throw, you know, throw the noodles against the wall and see if, see if any of them stick. And funny enough is just about every one of them has had their moments and contributed this mm-hmm. year. It hasn't even been like a case where, you know, someone just rose to the top. Uh, these guys have stepped up. And I think that that's ultimately more than I would have expected coming out of free agency if you had talked to me then. So, uh, I, you know, I think we've obviously got to add some more. I think we need to add some more youth to that room. Uh, but for, you know, for the rest of the season, I think you could find out, um, you know, which one of these guys you want, you know, which of these guys you would want to keep. I'm not sure that all three, you know, of Mitchell, Gaines, Carey, will be on the roster next year. Uh, they may or may not. Um, I think that you're going to add some youth no matter what. I would like to see – I would like to see a little bit more out of Peppers. I would like to see him getting some more snaps over uh, Kindred. Kindred, I think, has regressed a little bit this year. Uh, I don't think he's had as good a year. Uh, I'm not rooting against him, but uh, I think I'd like to see Peppers get as many of those snaps because I think he's ultimately the strong safety going forward. I want to see him lock up, uh, you know, our our free safety Randall. um, And, you know, you're just looking for a little more development out of Agba. You know, I, I want to see him get a little bit more into it. It's, it's really easy to forget how well he was playing. He broke his leg last year. He was really That's good. Fun. We saw about one game of that um, about two weeks ago, I think. We saw him with a couple of batted passes, some pressures, a sack. Uh, so uh, I would like to see a good stretch for Agua to finish this year. You know, next year he's getting into that. Uh, we're getting close to where we have to decide whether or not we're going to sign him to an extension, those types of things. So I think this are the little things that I'm looking at. Uh, I'm looking at which of these DBs is, is really going to be on the roster next year. I'm looking at, are we signing Agua to a, to an extension? Like he's going to get a big deal. Are we going to keep him? Are we Are going to see if he's going to be getting a second contract? So We know uh, what week Mitchell's do back if he comes back? I mean, he was already out of the cast, right? So, um, you know, I think he's close to practicing again. Uh, so I think he's, he's definitely coming back this year. Yeah, I hope they don't rush him back. But that's that's another big one coming down the stretch of, of a guy that I'd like to see get some snaps because he was absolutely fire in, in camp and, and, you know, in that first week. And he's on a one-year deal. Yeah. There's no more years. Uh, yeah, so that's a guy that you're really going to hope to see a lot more uh, work from so that so that you can figure out whether or not you got to get him to extension. Uh, so closing thoughts, fellas. No, nope. I think uh, <laughs> I I think in, in closing, I think that the most important thing moving forward for this team and and just for our future is the development of of Baker Mayfield. Um, I think the, the coaches so far have done a good job in in developing a game plan and executing a game plan successfully, and I, I think. That needs to continue to happen. Everything in the rest of 2018 needs to be focused on how to continue Baker Mayfield's success and his growth. There's there's multiple philosophies in how you do that. Um, I think what we're seeing from Kitchen so far has been great. Yeah, other than that, in the meantime, everybody out there, stop putting pineapple on your pizza and join <laughs> oh. us uh, in here next week. 
Yeah, and uh, I think you're right. I think that uh, Mayfield's uh, development is going to be critical going forward here. And somebody on Twitter asked us if it would be better to see him throw for 15 more touchdowns if it meant five or six picks or, you know, throw for eight or nine touchdowns in the last six games with one pick. And I, I think the answer is, is both are fine. As long as uh, there are life lessons to be learned from both of those outcomes um, of what he can and can't do and what uh, he has to be ready for pre and post snap, then I think either of them get him ready for next year. You just want to see him have success and you want to see the Mayfield that we saw the last two weeks, as far as the flyer and the energy and the spirit and the, the connection with his teammates continue on. Uh, because that is worth more than its weight in gold. So um, in signing off here, John, Mike, it was a pleasure as always. Um, kind of sad that we don't have a game this Sunday. Um, Me too. I don't often feel that way Brown, about Brown's bye week. Sometimes it's a well-needed emotional break um, from a terrible team. Right, that's our win. That's our season win, right? Yeah, yeah. You can't lose, or at least you can't lose on the bye week. It's a week that I get to enjoy watching NFL football on Sundays instead of what we usually get to watch. Um, and, and right now, for the, for, for the first time in a while, I'm really kind of bummed that it hit when it did. But um, we'll be back together next week to talk about the Bungles, and we'll talk about uh, the, the Hugh Jackson and, and, and that whole catastrophe of him going down there um, and how we feel about it. But until then, enjoy your week off. Uh, I hope your fantasy teams do well. Um, and uh, Stay dangerous. Stay dangerous, and if there's thoughts <laughs> you guys want us to cover on the next show, like Toggy Tacos or Pineapple Pizza, we are available at Twitter. Hit us up. Uh, Mike Krupka, John Pelosimo, and myself, Josh. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you. My name is Spencer Hall. My name is Jason Kirk. My name is Ryan Nanny. And when we combine, we form the, the Shutdown, Shutdown Fullcast. Fultron! I keep telling you, we're not Fultron. The Shutdown Fullcast is technically a college football podcast, but it's also a show about lawn care disasters, regional grocery stores we love, Tennessee Batman, homeowners associations, Bears and video games. I mean, there's also some actual football discussion, like about coaches having huge contracts or coaches making terrible decisions or coaches saying really stupid things. Or the NCAA saying really stupid things. Yeah, there's lots of stupid things in this big, dumb, beautiful sport. Sometimes we talk about football games. Allegedly. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it deserves to be taken, come find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts like this one. The Shutdown Fullcast. It's not Voltron.